message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. A long route through Genesis and through Acts. Um, so uh, don't feel like this is going to end anytime soon, but uh, it's been a, a joyous ride as we get a look into God's Word and really think and reflect upon um, what God has to teach us from His Word. But if you guys want to turn to Genesis 12, uh, we're going to be in verse 10. I'll go ahead and start reading for us as you guys turn there. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land, and he was about to enter Egypt, and he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, and male servants, and female servants, and female donkeys, and female camels. Or I'm sorry, and camels. He gave those to Abraham, sorry. And when, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah and Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why, have you not, or why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men the orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. All that he had. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for um, allowing us to gather once again together as your people. I pray that uh, you will speak to us today through your word. That your word will work mightily in our hearts and our lives that we won't just get head knowledge from this passage, but it will change our lives. It will help us love you and cherish you more. It will help us worship you in our everyday lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You ever heard of uh, Joseph Jefferson Jackson? Most people have never heard the name. No one, most people don't know his, his real name. He's uh, actually a pretty important figure in, in the history of in our history, actually. Most people know him as uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson. But even then, you hear the name and you probably may not have heard of him. Shoeless Joe was uh, his, uh, his short nickname. They call him Shoeless Joe Jackson or just Shoeless Joe. Now, there's a story behind uh, that whole name. But uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, he's actually one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived. He, uh, Babe Ruth actually said he modeled his swing after Shoeless Joe. Um, he actually has, I believe it's the, the sixth highest batting average, career batting average of any baseball player in history. Many of his records in the minor leagues and also the major leagues have never been beaten. Yet sadly, most people don't know who he is. His legacy is tainted. He's not known for his amazing swing. He's not no, known for his ability and how he influenced baseball for, for generations how he influenced Babe Ruth, the greatest hitter of all time. Or what some would say the greatest hitter of all time. What he's known for, though, is in 19, uh, 
1919, the World Series, Shoeless Joe Jackson and his teammates supposedly got offered money to throw the World Series. So they were going to get paid to, to lose the World Series. They were considered the team that couldn't be beaten. And sadly, they conceded. They took the money offer and they threw the World Series. And that later come, it came to light that these, these great men, these great athletes took money in order to lose the World Series. And now because of it, they were kicked out of the league. They were banned from baseball. Several sports magazines have him listed as the top ten greatest baseball players of all time. Yet we, we don't even know his name because of his tainted legacy. He refused to remain faithful to his craft. He decided that money and things of this world were better than continue on in his trade and being faithful to his trade. And because of that, he no longer is known. His legacy is tainted. When we hear him, we think of a person who's taking a bribe rather than a great athlete. And when we come to our passage today, here we start to see what we know of Abraham thus far. His legacy is going to be tainted as well. He, he will forever be known as the man of faith, but also this man of faith has times where he falls short of his great calling. If you remember a few weeks ago when we were in Genesis 12, we talked about how um, Genesis 12 gives us an example where Abraham was called to go into a land that he does not know. He's called to obedience, an obedient life. He's called to be faithful to the Lord and go to this place. God didn't give him a blueprint and tell him, this is how you're going to get there. These are the things that you're going to have to do and these are the things that you're going to encounter. He didn't give him a map of life. He called him to faithfulness. He didn't call him to, hey, here are these things that you have to do. He says, no, follow me. Follow after me. I'm not going to tell you how it's going to happen and what you're going to go through. I'm just calling you to follow me. And Abraham had faith and he followed the Lord. He called him to obedience, not to a plan. And he trusted the Lord. With that all in mind, now we come to our passage today. Let's look at, we're going to see how even great heroes of the faith sometimes fall. Now there was a famine in the land. Have you ever noticed that obedience to the Lord, we're going to stop here, cut this little section off here. There's a famine in the land. All too often when bad things happen in our life, when tragedies happen in our life, we start pointing the finger at God. We start questioning, is God in my life? You know, bad things are happening to me. Maybe God is angry with me. Maybe the Lord is not happy with me. Bad things are happening. Yet we see here and we see throughout Scripture all too often is that the faithful ones, they're the ones who go through trials. They're the ones who suffer. Maybe it's not that these bad things are actually bad. Maybe you need these things to look more like Jesus. James tells us to count them as joy. Count trials as joy because we need them. They're molding us into Christ's image. Well, Abraham is called to be faithful and to follow the Lord and go into this land of Canaan. And what happens? A trial takes place. Famine comes about. And rather than staying there and remaining faithful to the Lord and trusting the Lord in the midst of this great trial, what does he do? We'll see. We'll see how he responds. 
So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Became afraid, and he goes down to Egypt. I think this shows his lack of faith. Where do I get this from? Where do I get that Abraham has lack of faith, and that's why he is going down there? There's several places, and it's kind of a theme throughout all the Old Testament, is that when a person has lack of faith, what do they do? They go down where there's abundance. They always go down to Egypt. It's a sign of trusting in man rather than trusting in God. If you turn to Isaiah 31, this is what it says. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because there are many and horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words. But will arise against the house of the evildoer and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble. And he who is helped will fall. They will all perish together. So we have this passage where it refers to going down to Egypt as a sign of lack of faith. Then we also have, think about the, the exodus. Throughout the exodus, God delivers them from slavery and He promises them to take them into a new land. And they're all traveling there. And then when trials come about or they start to get hungry, what do they do? They don't look to the Lord. They don't put their faith that the God who has provided for them thus far will continue to provide for them. No. What do they do? They say, we were better off in slavery. Let's go back to Egypt. I know the Lord has called us this path, but let's go off. We were better off there. We don't want to follow the Lord anymore because it's too difficult. Let's go back to a life of ease and comfort. Let's go back to the way it was when it was simple. At least we had food there. Makes me think of uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book called uh, Screw Tape Letters. Now, if you haven't read it, I highly encourage you. It's definitely fiction. It's it's very fun to read, though it's a, a fun fiction. It's very interesting. It's theological as well. But Screw Tape Letters, what it's about is a man, uh, an uncle demon. Keep in mind, this is all fiction. So they have this uncle who is a demon, and what he's doing is writing letters to his nephew. The uncle's name is Screw Tape, and he's writing letters to his nephew, who's this young demon. And he's like, I'm going to give you some tips on how to help Christians stumble. I want to to help you to help them fall. So he's giving them advice. These are things that have worked in the past to help Christians fall. These are what you things you need to do. And then ever so often the nephew will write back and then the uncle will give him more advice on how to help Christians fall. Keep in mind it is fiction, obviously. But I think there's some helpful points and some things we can learn from it. Here's one of the letters that Screwtape wrote to his nephew, the demon. He says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope, soft under the foot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So what he's trying to tell his little nephew in this story, in this, this illustration, is that he's like, 
It's, an e- it's a life of ease. If you want to, to cause a Christian to stumble, make their life easy. Make them happy with where they are. Don't give them any signposts that you're on a path that leads to destruction. Don't make any sudden turns in their life. Make it simple. Make it easy. Make it easy to follow. Make their life happy. Isn't this how the life of disobedience generally occurs? Sin is easy. It's easy to to go and enjoy your life and never think about the consequences of your actions. It's a very easy path to follow. It's very likely Satan will help you along in your path. There's not many things that you have to do to follow this path of the destruction. As we were talking about Jonah in the past... You notice how as soon as Jonah wanted to disobey, what happens? There's miraculously a boat there that's ready for him to take him away. A life of disobedience is going to be easy. It's going to make your life easy. It's a life of ease with no struggle and no pain. Let me give another illustration. Just to nail this point home. There's a book I read several years ago, right when it came out. Um, called Tempted and Tried by Russell Moore. Um, you've probably seen a hundred articles by him online. He's got to be a very prominent figure, a former professor and uh, vice president of my school. and um, He's now speaks a lot to cultural issues. But he wrote a book called Tempted and Tried. And if you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard of this, I would highly encourage everyone to buy it. It's very good. It's about uh, fighting temptation and um, just in any sin. But uh, in this book, he gives an illustration. And... Uh, he gives an illustration of how cows are slaughtered. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. He, he mentioned how cows, whenever, if they ever sense fear, if a cow ever senses fear, he releases a chemical in his body. And this chemical travels all over his body. And the, the result of that chemical being released, it depreciates the value of the meat. It taints the taste of the meat. And a lot of people don't realize that. So... You can't scare a cow before you slaughter it, or just slaughtering it in a normal way would scare the cow so that he would release this, and now the meat doesn't taste as good. So what do they do? What do these farmers, these, these giant farmers who have cattle, how do they prevent them from releasing this chemical? So what they do is every single day, the weeks building up to the moment where they slaughter the cow, they put them on a, um, basically a conveyor belt. And it's going in circles. And every single day they're on, they're on this conveyor belt. And nothing happens. They get off the conveyor belt, they get back on. They go in circles for a while and nothing happens. And cows get adjusted to this and they get used to it. And they're no longer afraid to get on this conveyor belt. Then one day, all of a sudden, as they're on the conveyor belt, a spear is shot straight through their head in an instant. Sounds very graphic and very disturbing, and it is. And I'm very sorry for that, but... Um, <laughs> It's what you want before you go eat lunch, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think the graphic nature of this shows us really how Satan operates and how sin operates. We're getting on this conveyor belt every single day. We don't realize it's taking us anywhere. You know, we, we get on, we get off, nothing happens. And then at the last moment when we're not even prepared, it ruins us. It completely destroys our lives. And that's what we have here. Abraham decides rather than remain faithful to the Lord, he's going to go and trust 
in self and go to the life of ease. And he leaves Canaan and he goes down to Egypt. And let's see what happens next. This is what the path of destruction looks like. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance, and that when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. I want you to think throughout Scripture, all over the places where it talks about God and His bride, Israel, or Christ and His bride, the church. And think about, maybe Psalm 23 comes to mind, and how he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall not fear. Why? Because the Lord is with me. He guards and protects His wife. He covers her, as Isaiah says, in the shadow of His wings. He puts the wings over her so nothing can harm His wife. If anyone comes to Israel and is attacking Israel, God is the one who protects her. He is the hero over Israel. He guards her. Pastors are called to guard their church because it mirrors how Christ guards His bride, the church. Now I want you to take all these guarding and all these protecting thoughts and let's look to see how Abraham responds. He looks out for his own life rather than his wife. He risks her purity so that he may be saved. He says, my life is more valuable than your purity. He says, go down there and say you're my sister that my life may be spared. So it starts off with disobedience leaving Canaan because he's afraid of a famine. And now it goes even further. Sin progresses. And he says, my life is more valuable than yours. Lie to them and say this, so that my life will be saved. Although Abraham is going to be a great model of faith for us, Here he shows us the counter of how God and Jesus care for their bride. He is not the example for us here. He shows us even heroes of the faith have times when they fall. Let's keep going in our passage. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And the prince of Pharaoh saw her and they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dwelt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Notice how as Sarah is or Sarai is is living this life, risking her purity, being around Pharaoh, what happens to Abraham? Once again, he is living a life of ease. He's living a life of comfort. Things are being lavished upon him. Makes you think of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, He says, why does the rich prosper? And yet those who are faithful struggle. Here we see why. Here we get a model, an example of that. That all too often we think that It's only those who who don't have anything who struggle. We think that the the rich are doing well. We think that the rich are, that God is pleased with them and He's blessing them. Have you ever thought that that may not be the case? 
Have you ever wondered that maybe they're getting so comfortable in their lives that they don't see their need for a Savior? They don't see their need for anything. Sin has no economic boundaries. It's very much alive in the poor. It's very much alive in the rich. It is alive in all of us. Do not take comfort as meaning that the Lord is with you. And do not take struggle as meaning as God is angry with you. Never believe sin is too far from you. Eric and I had a conversation last night briefly, and we were just uh, discussing something we saw um, at a church, and uh, gave me the humble reminder, never believe we're too far from that. Never believe, never be too prideful to think that you're too, that you could not fall into that same sin. Never believe when you look at other sin that you are far from it. Cling to Christ. We all can fall into sin. Run to Him. Now let's go down to verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent them away with his wife that he had. This is going to sound eerily like the Exodus. And this, the same scenario is going to be played out in the Exodus. God's people are, are captured by Pharaoh. And then what happens? God places plagues on them until Pharaoh lets his people go. And then in the end, God... Pharaoh sends them away. I think the important point to take from this is that God is the hero, not Abraham. All too often we, we read stories, Caitlin and I were looking at this Bible trivia. We got Bible trivia for kids for Christmas, and we we're looking through some of the questions. And uh, Caitlin asked me, Who is the main character in the narrative of Noah? I mean, in the narrative of the flood. And um, the card had an answer, and I said, God is the main character in the story of the flood. And she's like, no, it's Noah. And I said, prove me wrong. <laughs> That's the point. All too often we think these stories that we look and we're like, we need to have faith like Abraham. We need to, to be bold like Moses to go to Pharaoh. Yet it is God who is the hero of the story. Abraham has given us no reason to model our lives after him in this passage. He's given no reason for God to save him. He's disobeyed God at every point. He has been unfaithful, yet God in His great mercy, in His graciousness, has redeemed them. He has set them free and set them on a new path. Even in the midst of their sin, God is gracious and God is the hero. When we come to the end of this text, we don't want to be marveling at Abraham. We don't left amazed at Abraham. And we want to read this in the context of the whole story of Genesis, where they're longing for the promised seed of Eve to come. Remember back in Genesis 3.15, God promised Eve one day 
A seed would come from her who would crush the head of the serpent and would set us free. And they're looking for that seed. They're longing for that person to come along, the offspring to come along and redeem them. And he hasn't come. And we have the hope that it's Abraham. He he obeys the Lord. That's the first thing we hear about him. But he too falls short of that standard. He too considers his life more valuable than his bride. He's willing to sacrifice his wife for his own sake. But when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the story of Jesus, we see a man who is willing to come and lay down his life for his bride. He considers his life of no value compared to his bride. He's not going to risk her holiness. No, he gives up her life to make her pure. He gives up his life for her purity. He tells us that there is no greater love than to lay down our life for another. Christ tells us and He shows us that which Abraham failed to do, He is going to come and do for us. Once again, we are slaves to sin with no hope and we are longing for a Messiah. We don't deserve God's grace. We are Abraham in this story. We're continuing to sin and sin and sin into trying to find our way out. And yet God comes. And it is God who is the hero in the story. He lays down His life for His bride. And sets us free. That's the hope of this passage. It's not in Abraham. It's in Christ. Are you looking to Christ? Are you repenting of your sins and turning to Him? Are you fleeing from this? Are you putting your hope in Christ? Pray the result of this would be that we long and worship Christ more for what He has done. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died. That's what this passage is about. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for allowing us to come together today to read through this passage.